This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title, The Pre-Roma, and is number six of the new series devoted to the exposition of the book of Exodus. It is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together, so if those of you who are using this recording would care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us chapters one and two of the epistle to the Ephesians. In our examination of the whole of the book of Exodus, we drew attention to the two dominating features, the redemption which led out under the Passover lamb and the atoning offerings which lead in, in connection with the tabernacle. Now we've come to the tabernacle and we realise the wonderful condescension of God to dwell with the people like the people of Israel. And we could also say to dwell with ourselves, couldn't we? To the end of chapter 2. We are made a habitation of God in the Spirit. But a few verses before says, and remember what you once were. So you see, when we say, fancy God wanting to dwell with the people like the Israelites. You say, fancy God wanting to dwell with any of us. And yet that's a consistent thing that comes out in the Scriptures. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Or at the very end of the book, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. It was so from the beginning. If you take that passage in Proverbs, the 8th chapter, when wisdom is there, and there were no mountains or hills or no deeps, and I was with him, and my delights were with the sons of men in the habitable parts of the earth. Well now, that's one side. But the God who was going to dwell with his people was a holy God. Holiness, the chief and most important characteristic of the living God. Well, how was a holy God going to live with any of us without compromising that holiness? Consequently, it was a peculiar dwelling place. It wasn't just four walls and a table and a chair. It was a peculiar dwelling place to stress that while access was the important feature, nobody could go in there by presumption. But any person without warrant who drew near to the tabernacle and touched uh, any part of its furniture was under the penalty of death. Holiness had to be recognised. Well now last week we were looking at the very centre of the tabernacle. The ark and the mercy seat and then the consequence there will I meet with you. I will meet with you. And we could sum up that in the New Testament word access. But access has to do with the very end of the story. Right in the very holiest of all. But there were veils and curtains and obstacles before ever you could get to that access. So Ephesians 1 says, accepted in the beloved before having access. All chapter 1 comes before chapter 2 in Ephesians, doesn't it? And no one of us can ever presume to have access into the holy presence of God who are not already made accepted in the beloved. Well now that's incipient in this story. At the bottom of this chart is a very slender little sketch, just an oblong, 
It represents the tabernacle, and you will see arrows pointing. But right outside, there is the gate of the court. That's where you must begin. You begin there. And you're faced with this brazen altar, upon which the sacrifices for sin were offered. You could not go further if you wouldn't go there. And then when you pass that brazen altar, where the one offering was symbolized, never to be repeated, it was repeated in their type and shadow, of course, but the same epistle that says they kept on doing it every day says, but when he offered, he offered once, forever, never to be repeated. That was immediately followed by a labor in which, in which the priests and those who served, although they had been accepted by reason of the sacrifice, and they were beyond the altar and the other side of it, they nevertheless never went in or out of their service without washing both hands and feet. Provision for both, you see. And then when that was done, they went into the holy place itself. And there was another veil. And until we get to the altar of incense, which doesn't come in the story for a moment, although it's there, that veil could not be drawn aside. For if Aaron the high priest himself had dared to go into that holiest of all, without the cloud of incense, he died. Now all this is insisting upon the two sides of God's character. A God of love, a God of mercy, a God of pity going out to us, and yet a God of holiness so intense that unless this provision had been made and made thoroughly, it would have been death, not life, to have had access into his presence. The epistle to the Hebrews, which teaches all this symbolism, ends up practically by saying, and our God is a consuming fire. Not, not, a, not a God who's a consuming fire because a person happens to be a wicked, ungodly person in his presence, but there are a whole lot of us. Unless we have provision made, it's death to enter into the presence of that holiness which is beyond our ability either to think of or to describe. So, there's no light matter here in this wonderful tab- tabernacle. Access, oh, what a blessing. Yet, acceptance. What a wonderful provision. And then to take the words into our own mouths from the epistle to the Colossians, we give thanks unto him who hath made us meet, made us all sufficient, as the word is, for the inheritance of the saints in the light. Not in the twilight, not in a dim religious light, but right in the searchlight of God's presence. What a provision must be symbolized by that offering there and that labour there to make it possible for any one of us to go right in to the very presence of God and meet with him and speak with him and hear him speak back to us. So we won't think lightly of these things. It's almost good that we sung a hymn. I didn't pick it out on purpose because it started by asking, how can we sing? You know, how shall we sing the love that sought? Well, how can we do it? We hardly know how to put the words. I believe that's a better hymn in the ears of God than if it was all glibly sung and we didn't hesitate or falter over it at all. Well now the, the um, brazen altar is mentioned in the 38th chapter. I'm just going to touch upon that very lightly this evening because we've got enough to do with the uh, the one piece which 
is before us, the showbread. But in the 38th chapter and the 19th verse, we have these words. Right, now we've got it. Number 16, verse 38. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for the covering of the altar. For they offered themselves, for they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eliezer the priest took the brazen censers, wherewith they that were burnt and offered, and they were made broad plates for the covering of the altar, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that it be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. You see, that altar made of brass was a standing warning to anybody. Don't trifle with the living God. These men were a part of the Israelite nation. They said, all Israel are holy, why should the priests be the only ones? But they presumed. And their senses, in their presumption, was used so that you couldn't enter that gate and know that story without realising that those men gave their lives for their presumption. And then you should say to yourself, and where do I fit in this? Am I presuming? Or have I something that will give me acceptance in the presence of such a God? Have you? You say, yes, we'll be thankful. But that's an inestimable blessing, isn't it? Well, then let's look again at the labour and its foot. And there we have in Exodus 38, verse 8, a reference to this labour. Exodus 38, verse 8. And he made the labour of brass, and the foot of it of brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. First of all, looking glasses is just an old English word. It doesn't mean made of glass at all. For they made a metal laver out of the looking glasses. They were polished metal. And I'm sorry to have to admit that these women were not assembled at the door of the tabernacle for very holy purposes. If you'll see in the margin, they assembled by troops, and the reference is to 1 Samuel, where it's most obvious they were a very licentious lot of people. And the mirrors were taken from those, and they were made into a labour for cleansing, so that nobody could ever stand in front of that labour without realising the depths to which human nature may descend. What reminders of the two sides, how deep in sin we may be, how rich the provision made for our cleansing. First, by the shedding of blood. Secondly, by the water. Now the offering of the, of the sacrifice for the person was once, but the cleansing was continual. And if you will turn to John the 13th chapter, you'll get our own Saviour's comment on this, which may be a useful piece to include. He had been scooping and washing his disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, Peter said what the others were thinking. 
course he gets all the credit for the wrong things Peter does because he blurts it out and the others said nothing but they thought the same thing and he said dost thou wash my feet thou shalt never wash my feet Jesus said to him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Oh, said Peter, if that's the case, then he goes out to the other extreme. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Then the Lord said to him once more. Now I'm going to give a revised translation of verse 10. Our version says, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Now as the scriptures use two distinctly different words translated wash. It's only right we should honour it, shouldn't we? So I'll give it to you. And I'll alter the tense of the verb at the same time. Jesus said to him, He that hath been bathed, needeth not say to wash his feet, or rinse his feet, but is clean every whit. There is one bathing which the believer has, which is good for all time. But the feet is the symbol of the contact with this wilderness of a world still. And you'll need a daily cleansing of your contact with this world until God says, I make a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So we have in the first epistle of John, we have fellowship one with the other. And it there says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. So there's another aspect. There's one offering and then it goes on cleansing because of the continual need while we are travelling home. So then we've looked at, in passing, the brazen altar and the brazen labour. There is also an altar of incense mentioned in chapter 3 which is not spoken of yet, so we're reserving that for a time. And then you will discover in this same chapter uh, 25, Exodus 25, that there is a candlestick. And again, just the same as they say looking glasses, when they're made of metal, so they say a candlestick where there were no candles in it, but they had lamps and wicks and oil. Don't you see? Words can be tyrants, or they can be servants. And this has sometimes been, in by not thinking, spoken of as the light of the world. Well, that's a title of our Saviour. But this isn't the light of the world. This is the light inside the tabernacle. This has to do with service. Inside, not service, outside. And then I want to come, oh, and then uh, we often speak of a seven-branch candlestick, don't we? Well, we're not committing a sin, but there isn't any such thing, you know. You can't have a seven-branch candlestick. You can have three branches on one side and three branches on the other and the central stem in the middle to hold them together. Don't you see the difference? If you took away the central stem, the whole would collapse, wouldn't it? If you took away three of them on either side, the central stem would still stand, wouldn't it? Well, now think of the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body. We'll go up the lights this way. There's one body. And there's one spirit. And there's one hope. And there's one Lord in the centre. And there's one faith and one, uh, one, uh, faith, one baptism and one God and Father. But it's the one in the centre that matters. The one Lord. On either side, the hope and the faith. 
on either side the baptism and the spirit, on either side the one body and the Father, but they all, they all depend upon the fact that he is central and hold them all together. Now I'm not saying that when that lampstand was designed and put in the tabernacle, God was teaching Moses the unity of the spirit in Ephesians 4. I'm not saying that. But I do say when we have our unity there, we can see the same sort of principle there, and that is a little useful lesson. Well now for the rest of our time, I want to devote it to the teacher that follows the statement about the ark in verse 22. I'm, I'm of course dealing with Exodus 25. There I will meet with thee. That's within the veil. Now there comes the next order. Thou shalt make also a table of shitty wood, same wood as the ark. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. It wasn't the same size, but it was the same height. It was on the same level. Outside, as well as in, there was this table on the same level as the ark. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. That was the same. And thou shalt make a crown round about it. That was the same. And then we find that this had no blood sprinkled upon it. But this was to bear loads. But before we get to those, some of the utensils are mentioned. Verse 29. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and the spoons thereof, and the covers thereof, and the bowls thereof, to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them. Now that word to cover with all, in the margin, is translated to pour out. It took me too long to show you how it's possible for one word to have the meaning to cover and to pour out. But you'll discover if you go right through the references of this particular word that its essential meaning is to pour out like that. And the Apostle Paul, who knew his scriptures, used it of himself. Perhaps you'd like to see the passage in Philippians chapter 2, 17. Philippians is an epistle of utter devoted service. Whether it be the apostle himself, whether it be Epaphroditus, who was nigh unto death for his service, or whether it be, shall we speak now reverently, of the Son of God himself, who, now look, Philippians 2, verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. Now most of us know that the Greek word there is the word kenosis, which means literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And unless he had emptied himself, friends, I believe we'd have to admit that Colossians could never have been written. For Colossians says that in him dwells all the fullness. He emptied himself first. And the fullness then went in. It was for our sakes the emptying, for our sakes the fullness. He didn't need either of them himself. Now down the same chapter in Philippians 2, the apostle follows in his master's footsteps. Verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. If you have a marginal reference in your Bible, you read, Yea, if I be poured forth upon the sacrifice and service. He's using the word that referred to the pouring out of a drink offering. Now, as far as I can gather, the drink offering in the Old Testament ceremonial was in some measure optional. The offering itself was the thing that mattered. 
The forgiveness of sins or the acceptance or whatever was in view was based upon the fact that that offering had been made. But the offerer, the offerer could add his little bit of thankfulness. I think that's very gracious of God. And that was called a drink offering. Poured out over it. Paul says, yea, and if I'm poured out, he says, look friends, whether I give myself or whether I don't, your salvation depends on another offering quite part of mine. It depends upon the offering of the Son of God. Whether Paul was faithful or unfaithful, my salvation is secure. But are we going to say that we owe nothing to that selfless service of the Apostle of Christ who filled up that which was lacking of the sufferings of Christ for his body's sake, which is the church? Well, if we do, God didn't, because he's used these very terms. The Greek word here is spendomai. And it would be, it's not good etymology, but it's not too bad to say he actually used the word which is in our language, he spent himself. He said so in another place. Though I spend myself. And this very self-same expression comes in that incident in the life of David, when in the thick of the fight he uttered an expression and then wished he hadn't afterwards, Oh, he said, what would I not give for a drink of the well of the water that's a deathlier? And then, three of his soldiers who heard it, they battled their way through, they brought the water back to him, and when he took it, oh, he said, I can't drink this. This is the lives and souls of men. Who am I to be served with such devotion? And he poured it out before the Lord. It seemed a waste, didn't it? But it was a recognition, you see. Poured it out, that's the word. So now we've got the service in Exodus 25. There is no sprinkling of blood, but there is something which indicates a little bit of sacrificial love. Poured out. Now the essential part of this table is that it says in verse 30, Thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me, Always. Showbread in the presence of God. What now we find several references to this in other parts, which I think would be useful for us to turn to. First of all, we'll look at Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Here, here we get <coughs> a little bit more specific statement concerning this showbread. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial. Now the bread is not a memorial. It's the frankincense that's over the bread that's a thing to remember. God is remembering his people Israel for he had twelve loaves in front of him. But he says, I want you to remember, not merely the twelve loaves but the frankincense. 
Now the frankincense is a word that by its etymology is similar to the word Lebanon. Lebanon. And it means something white. Something white. That's the first meaning. Then it was something very fragrant. That's the second meaning. And then its fragrance was reserved for God. They were forbidden. Anyone was forbidden to use these uh, elements of the spices that were used in the incense and this part of it. It was sacred to God. Now that's what God looked at. Of course, the eyes of the Lord in every place beholding the evil and the good. And even though you covered twelve loaves with a mountain of frankincense, you couldn't stop the Lord seeing the twelve loaves. But in type, in type, the twelve loaves were there. But they were not seen. The only thing that was visible was the frankincense. You and I ought to be very grateful that when we're in his presence, we're not seen in ourselves. Always and ever, with regard to practically every every position of blessing we possess, we'll find that the scripture keeps on saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And the apostle never apologizes for saying, well, I've said that before, so I'll put two dots. Oh, no. In Christ, in Christ, in him, in whom. Oh, it goes down the epistle to the Ephesians. He hasn't got, he hasn't got the ability to keep saying the same word Christ. He says, in him, in whom, and all, yet. always in him. That's only saying in doctrinal terms what's here in type. Well, then the next thing, it says, Every Sabbath, verse 8, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. You notice that word continually? Which you'll find that it's used elsewhere. Being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. But that may not be being taken from. The revised version Leaves out the words being taken because they're not there. They're put in italics. And the word from the children of Israel is translatable by on behalf of the children of Israel. This wasn't merely something taken from them. It was something that was on their behalf. They were being represented in that holy presence. If you turn back to Leviticus Chapter 5, verse 12 and 15, you'll see another reference to this frankincense in connection with the offering that is there. Verse 12, then shall he bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it, even memorial thereof, and burn it on the altar. He shall take his handful to remind. And verse 15. Um, I don't know whether that's quite what I wanted to say. With thine estimation, well that's rather leading us apart. We'll leave that verse 15 out. Uh, I'll come back to another passage in Exodus chapter 12 verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. 
And this day should be unto you for a memorial. That's the emphasis upon the Passover. Leading them out. Supposing we just translate it in a more holy reminder, which is a possible rendering. This is to be a reminder. Chapter 13, verse 9. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, for a reminder between thine eyes. Something to remind you. And once more in Exodus 28, verse 12. 28, verse 12. And thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod, for stones to remind the children of Israel. A reminder of the children of Israel. A reminder before the Lord. And again, in um, 29. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a reminder before the Lord. And then if you look again at Exodus 25, I'll just refer you to the verse I looked at just now to pick it up with another one. Exodus 25, it says that it shall be there in verse uh, 30, is it? Yes, and thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Always. Now, don't let's slip that and say, well, that's all right, but it's repeated from another angle in Numbers chapter 4. Verse 7, this belongs to our peace, friends, this type. Numbers 4, verse 7, And upon the table of showbread thou shalt spread a cloth of blue, and a cloth of blue has a symbolic value. It's the heavenly colour. It was associated with the priest's robe as well. A ribbon of blue, a fringe of blue. One of the things that was enjoined upon the people of Israel that they were to wear a ribbon of blue on their garments. And we say, well, why bother about what colour the ribbon is? Oh, well, it was a heavenly colour. And they valued it. Because, you know, it was a stock question that was put to any rabbi or teacher who stood up in Israel. As a question was put to him as a matter of course. Uh, what do you say is the first and greatest commandment of the law? You know, they put that to our Saviour. And he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And so, see? Well, they put it to Rabbi Akiba. I think that was his name. And he said, Almost certainly, the first and greatest commandment in the law is the wearing of fringes. And of course, a Gentile does a sort of supercilious smile. Fancy talking about wearing fringes as being the greatest commandment of God. But supposing it meant that fringe was a symbol that they should ever remember and remind one another that they were a holy and a separated people. That's the point. So we have this table spread with blue and put there on dishes, spoons, bowls, covers to pour out with all margin and the continual bread shall be on it. That's its very name now. In the first case it was to be there always. Well that's good isn't it? But the second case, it's continual bread. That's better still. That's its name. Show bread in the presence of God. It's continual bread. But it, it's telling you and me that we never 
are out of his mind, never out of his heart, never out of his sight, never out of his thoughts. Well now, what about when we do wrong? Well, there's no excuses made in Scripture for when we do wrong. But there is this that we take to ourselves, friends, that when you look at the history going on, there came a moment when the ten tribes and the twelve tribes divided. And the temple was still at Jerusalem. And there were only two tribes left. And the ten had gone. But every reference to the showbread, right through the Bible, from one end to the other, there's never the slightest hint that they said, well, there's only two of us now, we'll put two loaves on. The ten are gone. No. Always the twelve. Whether you're there or not. Whether you're faithful or not. Whether you're near or far off or not. Though we abide faithless, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is bread perpetual in his presence. Of course, that ought to make us feel very humble sometimes. To think that when we went astray as we've done, when we've perhaps partially been ashamed of him as we may be, when we've been very, very far from the thought of being in his presence and covered with all that sweet-smelling, glistening white frankincense. Yet at the same time, what a precious thought to think that whatever we do, we can't make ourselves acceptable. The best of us are not acceptable enough, friends, and the worst of us are not so bad that he'll ever remove one of those loaves because we stray. Jesus, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And one of them at least was told by him, before this night's out, you're going to deny me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So here we have a very precious type, a symbol in the presence of God of that which is unalterable. Now I think it might be wise if you see two passages later on, two chronicles, chapter 4, verse 19. It's still being used, not only in the tabernacle, but in the temple, two chronicles 4, 19. And Solomon made all the vessels that were for the house of God and the golden altar also and the tables whereon the showbread was set. I certainly agree it doesn't say twelve loaves were there but it says the showbread which can mean nothing more than obedience to the law of Moses otherwise it would have been intolerable. And in the 13th chapter Verse 11. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also they set in order upon the pure table. Well, I'm only referring to this because this is in the days of Jeroboam. And the ten tribes are gone. They've left now. There's only the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin at Jerusalem. Still they're putting the table there. Still they're putting the showbread there. Still God knows. And he claims in the scriptures that wherever they were scattered, 
one day, from the very places that he scattered them, he will gather them. There are no lost tribes of Israel, so far as God's concerned. They're only lost because of our ignorance. There's not a single word said in the scriptures that they're lost, except like lost sheep that have gone astray, but the shepherd knows where they are. And so we have this precious type of acceptance, this showbread with all its frankincense. Now I come back again then to Leviticus chapter 2 to stress that little word all frankincense. Just to remind us of the extreme value it has in the presence of God in its typical character. Leviticus 2 verse 2 And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons of priests and he shall take thereout his handful of the flour thereof and of the oil thereof. I want you to notice this. He takes a handful of the flour. He takes of the oil. We don't know how much. He could please himself. But he couldn't please himself with the rest of it. And with all the frankincense thereof. You see? You could have a, you could have a small amount of the flour. And you could have a small amount of the olive oil. But you couldn't have a small amount of the frankincense. You weren't allowed to pick and choose there. It's all the frankincense. That's the thing that made this acceptable. And you might like to know, just in passing, that this word, frankincense, occurs seven times in Leviticus. It occurs fourteen times in the rest of the Old Testament. And the symbol of whiteness is that which you meet in the New Testament as well as in the Old, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there, transfigured, and his robe was white and blistering. And in the book of the Revelation, white above the shining of the sun, the white robes of those who come through the tribulation, or the bride of the Lamb and whatnot, this continual emphasis upon the whiteness and the acceptance. I'm just wondering whether in the description of building the tabernacle there was a reason why the altar of incense is not mentioned in the early chapters. Although when we get the summary of it, it's there, must be there, so that there should be no confusing of the frankincense that was on the table of showbread and the incense that was going to be burned to cover Aaron when he went into the presence. Because there are two distinct things. The showbread represents the acceptableness of God's people. But the altar of incense is the ministry of that ascended, seated one. The intercession of Christ. And it's possible for some reason that it was now, it was omitted. Well now we look just again at the 30th chapter just to see there is a reference, although, as I say, it was out of place. We just see it for ourselves because it will not be possible in these meetings to go chapter by chapter through this wonderful series of types and shadows. It will be disproportionate amount of time as we've got the whole Bible before us. So we will look at chapter 30 just in passing. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon of shitting wood shalt thou make it. And here you have the gold once more 
and the crown once more, verse 4. And then you're told, in verse 7, And thou shalt burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at Eden, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense. I wonder whether we ought now to link two things together. The bread, for a moment, let's forget Israel and talk about ourselves. The bread re- represents you and me as believers accepted in Christ. And that is called continual bread. And this incense is all the fragrance of the person and work of Christ on our behalf at his right hand. And that is called perpetual. Don't you think there's a link between the continual bread and the perpetual incense? Don't you feel somehow if the incense were not perpetual, the bread would not be continual? Don't you feel somehow that we stand only because he stands? And don't you enter into the old Puritan's hymn when he says, If he shall falter, I must fall. I look to thee to be supplied with life, with power, with strength, with all. Which souls may glory in their store, but Jesus will receive the poor. And that Puritan who wrote that hymn is buried over here in Bunhill Fields. He knew what it was to be accepted in the Beloved. We've come to a point, friends, in our understanding of our position in Christ. I hope we have. That we haven't got any reserves. We haven't got anything we can fall back upon if, or I dare hardly say the words, if Christ should fail. That's our position. It's all or nothing with us. We've got nothing behind us that we can bring, nothing we can rest upon, nothing we can produce. The glory of our calling is that Christ is the beginning and the top stone and the middle, the beginning and the end, whatever figure we might use, we can never exhaust it. So I believe that we should link together the continual bread and the perpetual incense. In Hebrews chapter 7 and in Romans chapter 8, we have two references to intercession. And I would like to include those before we bring this meeting to a close. That is to say, instead of speaking now about incense, we'll just speak about what that incense represents to us. Now, writing to the Hebrews, in chapter 7, he said this. Verse 23, speaking about the priests. And they truly were many priests. And the reason why there were many of them is because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Do you notice the word continue? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he continues? What about all his merits? If he didn't continue, if he failed, oh, he said, what a difference. Look at this man. But this man, in contrast to those men, but this man, because he continued ever, Oh, I can say now, if that's the case, he says to me, because I live, you shall live also. So he said, because he continued ever. Our version says he hath an unchangeable priesthood. 
But there's no idea whether the priesthood's going to be changing or not. It, a better word would be an intransmissible priesthood, never to be passed on to anybody else. There's no successor to Christ. There was a successor appointed to Aaron when he was made priest. But it isn't that God's forgotten to appoint a successor for Christ. It's a glorious fact. There's no need ever to think of it. So, it says, wherefore, because of this, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. We're very glad to think that he saves us from the uttermost. But this is on ahead, friends. This is going on unto perfection. He is able to save pantelines. Tenies is a part of the word that enters into the word perfection. So we'll make it literal. He is able to save them unto all perfection that come unto God by him, seeing he ever living, to make intercession for them. Do you forget sometimes to pray for yourself? I must admit I do. Do you ever forget to pray for one another? I think we all fail, don't we? But the terrible thing would be if we once got the dread feeling that he forgot. Oh, that's the point. He ever lived to make intercession. Now, should we come to Romans the 8th chapter? Because, you see, somebody might say, oh, well, that's only in Hebrews. In Hebrews, we have a priest. But we have something for ourselves in Romans 8. This is where he begins to sum up. This question of being acceptable. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, and I've reminded you before that this is the very word used in the Greek Bible, of Abraham, who withheld not his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. Same word. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. You might put it as a question if you like. Is it God that justifies? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. But then he's got a yea rather, friends. Yea rather, that is risen again. He's got an even, friends, who is even at the right hand of God, who also, friends, make it in a session for us. Look at it. Look at the steps. Those little words. Rather, even, also. He, well, and it's lovely. Let's go back again to the cross. It is Christ that died. Or there's another step. Yea, rather. There's another step. Who is even. There's another step who also maketh intercession for us. And that's the climax. That's the top. Who shall separate us? Well, I've skimmed through once more and I've got tangled up very properly at the one of those verses, didn't I? I think that's good sometimes so that you don't think it just comes out like a turn of wheel. And I'm going to partly blame the fact that I've been doing other things besides getting ready for a meeting. I've been chasing about to see if I can get tickets to go out and enjoy myself with one of our friends here. So, all innocent friends, all innocent, all a part of the service.
And sometimes that stops the wheels going round a little bit. But we've seen, I believe, enough to have justified our meeting together. That in this tabernacle we've got a precious type that actually has been given to remind us. So I'll go back now and say what we said at the beginning. That while access into his presence is the goal, there's a way to it that God has marked out. Access demands acceptableness. And acceptableness means, so far as you and I are concerned, a need of a saviour. And the Saviour's been provided. And not only the Saviour at the beginning, but the daily Saviour all the way through. The brazen altar at first. The brazen labour with its water afterwards. And then the service that begins in the holy place. With a reminder all the time that within the veil is the ultimate goal. We have access. Ephesians 2. We have access with boldness. And confidence, Ephesians 3. What a, what a people we are. What a saviour we have. What a glorious position. And then to think that there are many of God's children. Some of them very lovely saints of God. Who have no idea and no conception of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That has been shown to some of us in those mighty epistles of Paul's imprisonment. And we can only realise it's the sovereignty of the grace of God, for there was nothing in ourselves to make us more acceptable. We know that perfectly. But at the same time, we cannot just diffidently say that we're not worthy to see these things and therefore we're so humble we won't consider them. I think the worst possible position is to become a little Uriah heap in the presence of God, you know who was so humble, and his father was humble, and all his aunts and uncles were humble, until at last there was an awful thing. No, 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 no. He says to you and to me in the language, stand upon thy feet. I have made you a man in Christ. You can look up. You can look right away to that day when you stand in that searchlight, and you can begin to anticipate the challenge. Who shall separate us? Who shall lay anything to the charge? of God's elect. And then go back again and think, what a precious lesson then for us all, out of a little table, with four loaves upon it. But don't stop there. And all the frankincense. And when we've said that, in type, we've said everything.